You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom, this is Standing in Two Worlds. I'm Avram Kivalevich. I'm here with Dr. Sam Juni from Yerushalayim. Uh, Dr. Juni, last week we talked about the idea of uh, transforming oneself, yes or no, is it possible? Uh, and it, the reason we talked about that was because we are in the period uh, of Elul, of the idea of tshuva, the idea of becoming, being, changing. We're just a couple of days now before Rosh Hashanah, uh, the first day of the year, which we traditionally see as a day of judgment. And when we talk about judgment, although there is this idea of judging what your life is going to be about in the coming year in terms of wealth and happiness, there's also the primal sense, which is, are you going to live or are you going to die? Mi or mi amut? Who's going to live and who's going to die? I think that that is something that no matter what age you're at, especially perhaps if you're more advanced, it's something that you think about quite a bit. And I think that's part of what creates some of the awe of this day of judgment. You're coming in front of God. It's a question of life or death. And I think that this is something that, although we as Orthodox Jews are thinking about this on Rosh Hashanah and perhaps all Jewish people, I think that, you know, mankind is, has been, of course, caught up with this and, and, and thinking about fighting against this, knowing about our mortality. Um, I, I think that the, uh, you know, Charles Dickens and his uh, classic A Tale of Two Cities uh, you can see that in the beginning of the of the work, I think in the third chapter of book one, he talks about the idea of death and he connects it to the fact that every human creature, and I'm paraphrasing and sort of quoting from Dickens, is constituted to be a profound secret and mystery to every other. That in every beating heart, there is secrets and imaginings that the, even the heart next to us, that's beating right next to it, your friend, your lover, doesn't really comprehend. And as Dickens said, some of the awfulness, the impressive greatness, this fear that we have and the sense of awe of death is connected to this. Um, As Dickens writes poetically, no more can I turn those leaves of the dear book that I loved and vainly hope in time to read it all. No more can I look into the depths of this unfathomable water wherein as momentary lights glanced into it, I've had glimpses of buried treasure and other things submerged. It was appointed that the book should shut with a spring forever and ever when I had read but a page. It was appointed that the water should be locked in an internal frost when the light was playing on its surface. And I stood in ignorance on the shore. My friend is dead. My neighbor is dead. My love, the darling of my soul, is dead. It's the inexorable consolidation and perpetuation of the secret that was always in that individuality, in which I shall carry in mine to my life's end, and any of the burial places of the city through which I pass. Is there a sleeper more inscrutable than its busy inhabitants are? And their innermost personality to me, or than I am to them. As to this, his natural not to be alienated inheritance, the messenger on horseback had exactly the same possessions as the king, the first minister of state, or the richest merchant in London. So that's the quote from Dickens, which sort of says that 
we're all so, in effect, locked within ourselves, and we don't even have an understanding of anything around us. And that's part of the reason why we sort of fear this finality. But the truth is we have that finality within ourselves. And that's Dickens' take on the the sense of and it's sort of bound within ourselves, our, our own inscrutable aspects. So that's a little bit of uh, 19th century speculation. I know it doesn't necessarily align with where you're coming from, but I know that you, you mentioned last week, Dr. J, that you are an Orthodox Jew and that you are going to also think about this idea of miyamus. But I know as a, uh, as, as a doctor, as someone who is involved with, with prime fears and prime aspects of what people are about, give us some perspective from where you're coming from about uh, the idea of living with the uh, living, trying to live and continue with the knowledge that, again, this might be your last day and who knows whether you're going to continue to live. So go ahead, Dr. J. Okay, hello again. All right, you're scaring me a bit, but I'll come back with all this. So let me just say my first reaction when I hear you uh, citing Dickens is saying, okay, here we have two Luftmenschen, two people who are up there who are floating in the clouds and don't have their feet solidly planted on the ground. And um, conceptually, I always saw myself as someone who is um, in essence a scientist, um, like my primary um, anchors in the thinking were logical positivism or uh, operational uh, approaches to ethereal concepts such as fear, such as isolation, such as associations with others. So that's where I'm coming from as, shall we say, a person of science or a person of logic. Um, As I got more into um, basically understanding human nature, when I say I got more into it, I mean primarily with patients and through scientific studies. And I did a a lot of both and probably more of the latter than the former in terms of hours that I would put into this. Uh, I basically, as you all know by now, drifted into psychoanalytic um, theology, if that's not an oxymoron. (laughs) And uh, my basic notion is that um, we are essentially powered by an unconscious set of principles. In other words, we usually are not uh, afforded access to what really drives us. And the reason we're not afforded access to that is because if we would see what it is, it would be quite sterile, quite scary, and quite non-human. In other words, in essence, our drives are not that different than animal drives. Drives towards a, a certain kind of basic safety, drives towards aggression, which I seem as natural. There is nothing very lofty about any of that. But what happens to human beings is that they start developing into something more than merely animals. And that usually happens um, when they start acquiring language. And this is all over Chazal, um, extolling the function of language of making this entity, uh, a human being, rather than just an animal person. Um, So, speaking about, let's talk about fear of death, which is a basic fear that everybody exhibits. 
um, basic psychology would say that fear of death has to be implanted naturally or ipso facto in any organism. Otherwise, there would be nothing driving it to continue because ultimately it'll just take a wrong step, not watch itself, so to speak, and then disappear, which wouldn't serve either it or the species or the entire cosmos maybe wouldn't serve much good if things just fall apart so there's a drive to keep living now um the way it's encoded or the way that drive makes itself known to people is through built-in fears so there are certain things that are just fearful certain things that are just avoided at all costs and the primary drive according to basic um shall we say, psychodynamic theory is a drive to avoid anxiety. In other words, it's almost programmed in a Skinnerian stimulus response way that certain things will make us anxious and the body thoughtlessly, automatically avoids anything that's been associated with anxiety and death is associated with a heck of a lot of anxiety. So that's one of the major no-nos, the major um uh, cliffs to avoid in any organism, including humans who are still organisms, you try to avoid death. Uh, now, when we look at people who become more sophisticated and know how to talk and come up with concepts, a lot of what we call basic fears and basic needs and even basic drives get repurposed or reclothed in words and in logic. And it's an age-old question whether you ever really um, um, manage to get over or supersede that basic kind of animal uh, existence and you become something much more lofty or you stay that way. And I'm thinking of this anecdote of, of two, a rabbi and a priest, of course, it's not in a bar, okay? It's some kind of major debate. And this uh, priest tries to show that it couldn't have been a priest. It must have been a heathen who tried to show the animal nature of people and, and show that he can take animals and trained cats to be waiters, and they did a very nice job, and they were curtsying and serving wine, and then this rabbi lets out this little mouse, and all these cats return to their primal motives, and they forget about their tuxedos and their drinks, and they start chasing the mouse. Okay, that's a caricature, but the real question here is, especially for those of us who have a belief in the world as being more than just kind of complicated uh, cause and effect machinery, is to what extent have we managed to uh, transcend that kind of basic mechanistic animal kind of nature and become something much more lofty. So th that's the issue, the underlying issue that I hear when you hear when you cite Dickens or you cite anybody who would be talking about the higher nature of man compared to some basic animals. Um, yeah. So, okay. so, I, so I think you've you know you did a, a great job dancing around the question. I appreciate it. I mean, I know, yeah, I'm a good dancer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Well, like, you know, I've been accused of meandering in my questions, but that was a, uh, an answer that I think, uh, yeah, you're right. You, you talked about, you know, the primal instinct, which of course Dickens and no one, uh, I think would deny that every living being has that uh, fear, uh, the, the scared deer that runs away in the headlights. Uh, and I think you're right. We are hardwired. And yet we're talking about, as you say, something verbal and sophisticated and to take it to something more than just, you know, uh, we see ourselves as more, as you say, than just reacting in an animalistic way. Um, uh, again, sure. there's plenty of listeners and, I, and I'm going to thank you for 
people who, who are in your camp, not your camp, but people who are your friends and people who, who are listening on to this podcast who don't subscribe to the idea that we're standing in front of God now and on, on, on any special way uh, more than we would any other day. So I'm not talking to, in a Jewish way. I'm talking about in general. We all know that the, the batteries go out. And um, where do you see, um, do you see the idea of, of, of the fear of death or the uh, being cognizant of your mortality as something that is healthy? Is it something that a person should, other than a person who's been, get, who's been given uh, a diagnosis of, 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 of his terminal death, by a doctor who needs to get his affairs in order. Do you see this as something that you would expect healthy people to to integrate into their lives, uh, and not just to make sure you have your will and make sure your your kids are taken care of? The idea of okay. living, go ahead, living day to day. Yeah, first of all, you're getting me depressed, okay? That's my gut reaction with all your talk this way. But sure, let me talk about this. And, and let me get into a an entire discipline of psychology, which I have, in truth, a basic disdain for, but I have an appreciation for its thinkers because many of the, its uh, thinkers are quite sl- smart, and that's existential psychology. And one of the cornerstones of existential psychology is that we all manage to live our day-to-day lives only by lying to ourselves, only by deceiving ourselves, because just from a primal point of view, if you know that death is around the corner, you should be getting very anxious because death is something that we don't face, that we don't explore, and therefore is very scary. In other words, we all know that when you have a dangerous situation, even in the case that you talk about terminal illness, which I deal with a lot professionally, information calms people down. Even if the information is not hopeful, even if it's not something that is palliative, just knowing what's happening, it makes you feel somehow more... um, at least anticipatory, and maybe even in control in some kind of manner. Control maybe not if, but maybe how and when, and how will I set it up, or will it overpower me? So the notion really is that everybody agrees, and that's everybody across psychology, is that people in their day-to-day life function best, or most functionally, in terms of goals that we think of, providing, going after... um, social goals, etc., if they put the fear of death or the knowledge of death out of their minds. And in terms of existential psychology, and it fits a lot with religious psychology, especially pastoral counseling, that is living a lie. That means you are not genuine. Because if you live a life where you negate certain things that not only everybody knows, but you know darn well is going to happen, and you pretend like you don't, like when you have the... Um, terminal patient whose only concern is how to make a better stock trade and increase his portfolio by two and three. And you sit there, I sit there as a, as a professional thinking, what's going on with you? Who cares? So you might say, okay, you want to leave it for your kids or for charity. But I'm thinking of in particular of one person who was the most average person with the highest degree of avarice who doesn't care for anybody, who wouldn't give you a nickel even if you're homeless on the street, and he's going to double his fortune, and then what? It's going to the state. And yet they are driven. And the assumption is that this is something that they use to block themselves from realizing the truth, realizing the ultimate. And then a more 
at a level which is not as relevant here, but it's a nice um, um, comparison. There are people who have a lot of pain, a lot of hate that they don't want to face, and they channel and sublimate all that pain into goals which are rather, shall we say, puny or insignificant, instead of saying, hey, why don't I take care of X or Y or Z? And you don't. Okay, so that's called living a lie. And in a sense, what I see is that facing death is much more realistic. And I'm talking from day one, because as the literature says, you start to die from the moment you're born. You're on your way to death. You may not have, you usually don't know the date or the schedule, but you know what's happening. It's like you charged up a battery and you know this battery is going to go because the charging stations are few and far between and they never charge you up to potential. So you're going downhill. So living a lie from, shall we say, an authenticity point of view is quite humiliating. It really knocks you down. Knowing that you're going to die and still making something of it is a way of at least starting to make meaning of your life. To say that the only meaning of your life is death, a la Sartre, is something to me that's an absurdity because it's not so meaningful. What's the big deal? So I'm going to die. So the computer knows that after six, six more hours, it's going to say battery going. So what? But if you face that, you can then be very realistic of things around you and the amount of defensiveness you have is going to drop down because you know the end, you know the whole plot. The question is, how do I navigate from here to where I know where I'm going rather than how do I do things to avoid the realization of my own mortality? And then once you enable yourself or you unshackle yourself from this basic primitive fear where your entire life was devoted to not facing it, it's like basically walking on the field without grenades. Ain't nothing going to happen to me that I don't know it's going to happen. And now I can make some decisions based on what. And the what is the real question. So for many people, true existentialists who don't have a belief in God, who don't have a belief in, in, in religion, the answer is, eh, I can kill myself now or I can wait till I die. Makes no difference at all. So that's one way to approach it. For those of us who can get unshackled from that kind of um, simplistic orientation and say, well, let me see what else there is besides eating and sleeping and taking a bath and massaging myself and listening to a good joke or doing a puzzle. The question is, is there more here? It literally frees us up to look for the spirituality within us. And we all recognize that there is a spirituality within us, although there are some very interesting reductionists in psychology and in psychiatry who will say, no, that's just a smokescreen for something else that you really don't want to face, some other thing that's bugging you and you're dressing it up in some ethereal way. There's no question that the gut impression of thinking people is that there is more to life than this. And I've gotten this. I have one particular colleague, a very good friend of mine. He is definitely not part of any kind of organized religion. And he tells me, Sam, I have no question. There is something else going on here. I can't tell you what it is. I doubt whether it's you guys going to shul, but there is something else going on there. You can't define life just based on all of this. Otherwise, it would have shorted out a long time ago. So yes, I personally definitely have a, a um, my anchor to what's meaningful does not lie in reductionistic science. I think that we can use reductionistic science as a tool of weeding out interferences. But then when you whittle it down to the core, there's something very alive there. There is a connection to 
something that transcends. And I feel that it's that connection that gives us meaning because everything else is a contrived meaning. And again, as paper tigers, I think of um, uh, humanism without a religious basis to it. I find that being just simply a game. I don't see anything that's intrinsic about any kind of pro-social values that are not rooted in something transcendent. So that's my, my, the way I manage, as you say, standing in two worlds. That's yeah. my compromise. Yeah, well, 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 I appreciate that. And I think that maybe in a, another episode, I think maybe we could uh, uh, open up the, uh, the, the sense that you, I'm sorry of using that term, but the, what your belief in the transcendent is. I, I, but I, I just want to, you know, I, I, it's hard for me uh, as someone who's been a rabbi for basically 40 years to not reference what you were saying to the famous Rambam in Hilchus Tshuva, the Maimonides in the third chapter of the laws of Tshuva, which is, we talked about that last week, which is that the reason, the other big event that besides standing in front of God, uh, Sunday, Jews all over the world will hear the shofar blast. And the Rambam says that the idea is, this is his, his own speculation, but he says he believes that that's what it's about. And he sort of creates his own pasuk, his own verse, where he says it's about uru uru yishenim mishinaschem ve'hakitzu nirdomim mitar demaschem. Wake up, you sleepers! You sleepers that are sleeping, you ones that are in you're, you're you're letting yourself be in this heavy stupor. And he says, look at what you're doing, because what are you doing? Most of us, as you say, Doctor Juni, forget the truth. And deal with, as you say, the next stock trade, the Hevli Azman, as the Rambam says. Everything that you're about is something that you know is like Hevel, which is sort of like ethereal, which will disappear, uh, which really isn't helping you in a, in, in a, in a, in a concrete way. He says, look at things that are more serious. So part of what Tkiyas HaShofar is supposed to do is to pivot us and make us perhaps wake up and, and, and look at things from a, a more, uh, obviously a more mature and, and religious perspective from his way. Um, I just wanted to just say two other points before I get your, your final comments on this. One thing is, I know that, and I'm not a, a, a an anthropologist, but I've done readings in National Geographic, and, you know, and I know it sounds really stupid when I, when I say that, but you know, I, I've read and I've seen documentaries and, and 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 i believe that there are many societies that don't have the death angst that we have that are much calmer about the idea of of, of living even knowing and, and and not having what dickens was talking about that awfulness of death not feeling that that sense of of helplessness not feeling that sense of of pain but actually having a calm recognition that this is part of life and they could still appreciate, and they aren't zombies either. And, and I think there are societies out there, again, I'm not well-versed enough to know the ins and outs of that society, but I think there are what we would call incorrectly primitive people that I think have done a, a, a better job uh, of navigating this and not allowing us to be, to be overwhelmed. And just one last thing uh, on that and, and, and give you something to chew on. I've recognized this, and I've shared this with you a couple of years ago, and I just want to share it with our listeners as well. My sense of the fear of death, of, of 
of not wanting to die and pushing it away. I found that 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 dissipated when I became a grandparent. And when I saw my grandchildren, and then when I played with my grandchildren and, and interconnected with them, I found uh, a, a great sense of 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 calm acceptance that I didn't have beforehand. And I think human beings, part of the reason why they have this fear of death is because there's so much more they have to do. They don't want to face up to things. They feel that, 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 that the purpose that their parents have told them about, they haven't fulfilled. When you see beyond your children and you see that next generation, that third generation, that allows you to accept the idea that the world is theirs and you can do what you can and giving that to them. And, and you can accept the fact that you aren't going to be around, but you can be happy looking at that, imagining that, and realizing what your life has produced. And that I think could also make us not have this fear. So those are the, those are three three things that I and, and feel free to respond to any of them. Okay, so I have to say personally, surprisingly to myself, I find myself resonating to what a lot of what you're saying with a twist, of course, in each. So let me just start. Um, the Rambam's notion, wake up from your slumber, oh, you thoughtless people. Um, what I'm thinking is that um, what the message I get from there is that we are all caught up because of our fear of death. We're all caught up with these um, thoughtless pseudo-goals that we're chasing all the time and that despite their supposed complication, they are essentially something that's disdainable, as disdainable as the um, animal who is programmed to just chase their prey and that's all they do and to watch out not to get trampled by some car, by some guy who's trying to get some roadkill. That's a very elementary existence. So the negative, I think I share with you very well. It's the positive that I'm not quite sure how it's formulated and I see differentials among people because the answer is this definitely makes no sense. But what does make sense? So for those of us who have personal subjective content with a soul, we feel that's more meaningful somehow. And I know there's allusions in the Ramam to saying that when you just realize the workings of the universe and realize that there's a prime mover, somehow that evokes within you a longing to be unified to some extent with that prime mover, who is God and our lexicon. But the message really here is in terms of, um, of the Rambam, as I hear it, as, at least as I associated to myself as you were speaking, is stop lying to yourself. That is a, the negative injunction that's primary. Don't fool yourself. Don't get caught up with what he calls avalam, which really means um, insignificant or, or, or purposeless kinds of goals that you've set up simply because you're bored out of your head and you can't dare face reality and then stabilize enough to come up with something that's much more meaningful. And to the Rambam, and bless him, for him it was a natural. Once you get rid of the junk, it's clear what's out there. And I think spiritually that's probably true for everybody, because when you unencumber yourself from your daily mundane, simplistic issues, what's left then is just something to make meaning of yourself. And there I find myself talking, unfortunately, like an existentialist, to make meaning of what's going on. That's a very hot spot today in all kinds of positive psychotherapy, which I do not practice as a rule. 
Okay, but the idea is make meaning, make yourself something more than something that's just insignificant, that comes and goes, and even when you're here, really means not much at all. Okay, so so in term, so you're on board with that, and and hopefully, uh, I know that you're planning on attending uh, some sort of service on Kiyat Chopra, and I know that that will that will somehow um, uh, help you uh, and, and help all of us. With we could sort of like. Uh, you know, feel what the Rambam wants us to feel. So you're you're on that. What about what you were talking about? What about uh, what I was saying in terms of other cultures? Do you think that they might they might have a secret that we don't have? I think many of the cultures, those pictures you see in the National Geographic, <laughs> basically do incorporate the knowledge of death very early in terms of childhood, and they live with it. So I can't say, I'm, I'm, we've done um, intensive studies with um, uh, in the, uh, Native American cultures, intensive studies, and I am in awe of the way that they don't fool themselves and that they face reality. They know the score, both for themselves, for their entire religion. I, I've had the um, unfortunate uh, experience of um, um, dealing with an Indian tribe just after they conducted a mass funeral for their religion because they felt there are so few of them left that it's not going anywhere. I had a similar kind of experience dealing with the Samaritans, who the original Shamronim in um, Israel, with the notion is they know they have had it. I remember the Karaites, who when we were visiting them were like 50,000, and Be'er Sheva said, in two generations, we are gone because unfortunately, we're going to assimilate into these Jews, okay? So they, in other words, the negatives are all there, feeling that they're lost, that their identity is going. I just, I think we can learn a lot from them. I'm not so excited about the conclusions, like in American Indian uh, culture, the basic notion is so therefore, it's Mother Earth that matters. And they come up with a theology, which is essentially, to me, recycling. And I would feel very, shall we say, deflated if that became my religion, you know, after realizing that everything else makes all sense. So what makes sense is not to use plastic and make sure that the resources of the earth keep staying there. I would not get excited about that. But, but, but one uh, second, let, let me just, what I, again, like I said, I, I'm, I'm a dabbler and, and less than a dabbler here, but there is a certain uh, calmness of spirit saying, look, I'm all part of this, this ecosystem. Yeah, all I, I, I'm a bag of bones that lives, and yet I respect the planet, and I respect the animal that I'm going to slaughter, and 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 all of us are going to go into the happy hunting ground, so to speak. Like you definitely, you know. And again, I don't, I, I don't want to, you know, talk about Jay Silverheels, you know, Tonto, uh, the the noble Indian. But there is something, as you say, compare that to the rat race, compare that to the to the angst and and anger. There's something, isn't there? Something beautiful about that calmness of spirit? What's beautiful is that you've managed to rid yourself of the craziness that doesn't let you think straight and that you've managed to join something higher than your individual self and your individual petty needs. Yes, the algorithm is correct. The question is about the content of the positive side of the algorithm. And I have to say that I would not get personally excited. I might feel calm, but I would say, I don't know about this. I finally cashed in my entire portfolio and I bought myself a huge what? The earth. Like what? What's so crap? The earth. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I would have the same 
a belief in the transcendent if the whole earth exploded okay i mean i don't see and then but to them earth earth has a theological meaning earth doesn't just mean earth it has a bunch of symbolism so look i'm not in there i can't speak for them but i definitely feel that they're living a much more meaningful life from an existential and from a human point of view than those who are caught up in goals which if you give them five minutes to think about it they'll say yeah this is ridiculous this means nothing. There are people that, for instance, there are people who are caught up in goals of power. Okay, I'm going to accumulate as much power as I can. And then what? Okay, then you get up in Napoleon and you die at age 33. And what? And what? Are you going to rest any better in your grave? Are, is the world going to be any better? What is there besides what you've done from day to day? How many potato chips you've eaten? How many uh, nice figurines you've accumulated and put under the glass jar? How many arms you've built? I just, again, I'm very uh, vociferous on the negativity of what doesn't make sense. But the answer is transcendence, joining something that's bigger than yourself, which to my mind, uh, people who don't practice a religion in the higher order are simply substituting a new goal, which is a fet. It doesn't mean much. Okay, so you're going to accumulate X, make sure uh, that Y happens. Why or why should you? And those who devote themselves to the betterment of humanity, there's a step there, but only insofar as humanity is a reflection of some kind of higher being. You know, the notion that each of us is a chelik el which means that we each are a soul, and the soul is higher and connected to divinity in some sense. But just helping humanity, like if I, my goal would be to make sure that every single PC in the world goes at double speed. Like, ah, oh, give me a break, okay? And if you view humanity as something that's essentially soulless or something not connected to divinity, why are you connecting these things? Why, why would you care of making sure that all ants can reach their uh, goal or all queen bees can make as many bees as they can? Why? So that's, again, I'm much more adamant about what doesn't make sense. I am not the best, I'm not a rabbi, and I can't quite argue for why it is my particular gut or socialized orientation and religion makes more sense than others, but I definitely feel it makes more sense than all the other options that I know on the negative side. Okay, well, you, obviously, you know, I'm coming from that, that, that. That's the hat that I wear, and that's the only hat that I even know. But I would say, you know, it just I want I want to get your last comment on what I talked about the grandchildren. But I just want to say one thing parenthetically. I just want to throw out there uh, from National Geographic and other places. We I, I've been reading a lot about the spread of pandemics and the spread of smallpox and and other things throughout history. And we know that those beautiful uh, people the people who were the, uh, the the native population of what we called the new world were free from those diseases. And, and, and we brought them, we brought those diseases over to them. Um, and we brought our whole society over to them. And, and many of those, what we see relics of that society of the, of, of the American Indian or the native American population, we're, we're seeing them after they've been dealt with and been affected by what Western influences have done. It would be wonderful to have seen them in their, in, in, in their prime. Uh, we would, we probably would stop romanticizing what they were, but maybe we would get a real sense of the subtleness and maybe even sophistication of their spirituality. And it wouldn't necessarily be this thing that was just hanging on. Uh, let's get your last thing. Let's, let's, let's end this on, on a sense of simcha, a sense of happiness and joy 
do you feel what I feel when, when your grandchildren are around? Do you feel the sense of, of, hey, I don't care. I know I'm not going to live. They will. They'll, they carry my blood. They're, this is my bloodline. This is my name. This is what I've done in the world. I'm not, I, I don't feel like I've left the world empty because, look, this is, this is the, uh, what I've done. This is what, and, and now I can be, I'm at peace with myself and I'm not frustrated. And that's, and therefore I don't fear death as much as well. What do you say to that? Well, I'm sorry to be the disappointing cow who kicks over the bucket of milk at the very finale. But my personal feeling, and this comes from working with a lot of patients and from my own psychoanalysis, that feeling that the fact that you have sired more generations and that they will continue on your name is a desperate attempt against disappearing. In other words, I am back to my story, back to my deceptions that I'm not dying. Well, I'm dying, sort of, but part of me continues living. My name, my, my name will be on the marquee of, uh, of a certain theater or on the name of a certain um, pro-social institution, and it won't be called just the institution. It will be called the junior institution or the junior way of thinking or the junior method of psychoanalysis. Give me a break, okay? So I'm sorry to end that way. I don't. That is not the answer for me. I am happy that I have children. I am happy that they will be happy at the gut level. But to tell myself, therefore, I will continue living, it ain't happening. I am sorry for doing this. <laughs> well, I wasn't saying that this is my eternality. This is actually my way of, of making peace with the fact that, yes, that mortality is there. Yes, I understand the there. peace part, but I would not say, don't deceive yourself, my dear rabbi, to think that this gets you away from the death anxiety. Well, I'm happy. I'm happy for the terms of endearment anyway. So that's it, my friends. That's our last show before Rosh Hashanah and before this Jewish New Year. Uh, again, uh, although uh, Dr. Juni brings a, an air professionalism uh, that is unmatched, I do want to take this opportunity to wish all of our listeners uh, a happy and healthy New Year, a much better one uh, than the one that we passed through. Thanks again for giving us so much time throughout these episodes. We'll be back on the other side of the calendar with something new. That's it, my friends. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 